And on the subject of bridging the gap, it's amazing to uh, be able to introduce Malcolm Honline, who is in Israel. He's also going to help us bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora that we've suffered with for the last two years. Uh, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He is with us from the Holy Land on this Friday era of Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be here. And especially from this perspective, especially from this perspective of being able to look over Yerushalayim as I talk to you. Must be amazing, frankly. We, we we continue to emphasize, and you just heard what I had to say about one of our special projects. Literally this year is going to be centered on bridging the gap, the terrible divide that Israel and diaspora have had over the last couple of years. You've had a little bit of a different perspective on this uh, than I have in terms of the way Israel has acted, but now it's not a time to uh, to criticize or to praise those who've acted during the pandemic. It's time to recognize that there are people in diaspora who are desperately trying to get back that connection to the Holy Land. With that in mind, it must. I, I don't know how many times you've been there during the pandemic. It still must be an extra special feeling being there today, um, uh, uh, again, after having missed it for so long. Absolutely. I, I have to say, I, I look forward with anticipation. I, I was there three times this year, in the past year, not this year. Uh, and, um, you know, I, 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 for a year or, or more, was not able to go. And, of course, it tears at us, and it, it's painful for many people who are unable to go because of the restrictions of their children being unable to travel. Thank God the students are here, and you should go to seminaries and universities. Uh, the hotels are not full, uh, but there are more tourists coming now, so the balance is not 99% Israelis, but getting closer to 50-50. Uh, the planes are full. They're flying full. Um, I think there will be an explosion, but... You know, I think it's not, as you said, not time to criticize government decisions. The government didn't decide to do this because of estrangement from the diaspora. It's the last thing they want, but they had to make decisions. And whether they were wise or not, time will tell, or you can criticize. But I think a lot of the exaggerated statements about moral disgraces and the things were, were unfounded. Israel wants now to reach out uh, in many ways to the, to the communities brought to get people to come back, to show them that they really care, and I think... Uh, we'll see a, a tourism increase, uh, certainly by the time Pesach comes. All right. We uh, Again, I have a little bit of a different perspective. My audience is obviously familiar with that on the caring issue, but uh, again, that's not for now. Uh, it's great that you're there, and it's always extra special when we get to conduct this conversation uh, with at least one of us there uh, in the Holy Land. Um, and, and funny enough, you know, you talk about what you just described, you know, what the last two years have been like, and funny enough, you land there at a time where if the anecdotal evidence is correct, <laughs> it sounds like everybody's getting getting this corona now. Like, it's funny that they're opening up when they are, and again, not a criticism, I'm thrilled about it, but everywhere, everyone I speak to now, it seems that they, or family members, or people they know, are all being, you know, struck by this Omicron. So, who knows, maybe... <laughs> Maybe maybe we should have been a little bit more open than we were. Again, not for today's conversation, but the reality is that maybe with the volume of people that you're going to interact with and see and speak to who have either had it recently or are experiencing it now, maybe that will get us to a point where this could, could all get back to normal. And nobody's proven that uh, the herd immunity, but the numbers are going down here and pretty dramatically and expected over the next two weeks to reduce even greater. There are some serious cases, and that those remain uh, at, at the same 
same level. Uh, so it's it's not that it's it, people dismiss it. You see many more people wearing masks, certainly indoors. I think that the, the, those decisions will be made more and more about <clears throat> who can get in. They're going to lessen the restrictions and the requirements, even maybe not the PCR test. That we'll see in the next uh, days and uh, as the government makes decisions. Uh, but uh, we already see the, the change. I know for reservations and hotels, they've said that they've seen the uptick for the Pesach period and for other times. And, and how long do people stay away? They want to come and they should be able to come and we should make it. Uh, you know, it, it, I think that people too often take Israel for granted because we can just go freely and pick up and go the next day to Israel. That we're reminded in this period how how much we cherish Israel, how how central it is to our lives and to the lives of most Jews abroad. Yeah, believe me, I hear exactly what you're saying and really important words and well, worth the time to, to spend on that theme, and I appreciate that. Obviously, a lot of news, and we'll try to get to as much as possible. Um, and, and I don't even know, you know, it, it may be even unfair for me to ask you for a comment on this, because I don't even know what there is to say, but just how, how sad, how sad that uh, Jonathan Pollard starts this new life in Israel um, and and we, of course, all these years were so concerned about his health, and it ends up his wife, who I did not realize had fought the way she did for his release and, and did all the things that uh, uh, that she did over these decades. How sad that she has passed away at this point. Well, it is very sad. It would be sad in any event, but it's especially sad in this context that she did fight for his release and um, they've been living in Israel for over a year, and it was, this was their dream being fulfilled. I think the um, um, the, the cancer that she had and, and stuff was something that's been around for years. She's been fighting uh, very courageously against. She was fighting courageously against it. Right. Um, I know, you know, former Prime Minister Netanyahu went to pay a visit, a shiva visit, and at the funeral, many dignitaries, including the mayor of Jerusalem. And the chairman of the Jewish Agency were there to um, to, to to be president to show support um, to uh, Jonathan and to pay tribute to his wife, Lola Shalom. Yeah, and uh, I, I, again, a lot of things I didn't realize how long they knew each other and all the work that she did. And uh, yeah, he had. Uh, there there are some amazing videos of uh, the funeral and shiva that are coming out that I recommend everybody. Uh, try your hardest to uh, to watch. You'll see. Uh, you'll learn. A, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this entire episode. That's for sure. Um, Malcolm, what could you tell us about what happened uh, uh, with the uh, ISIS leader in Syria? That he's dead, <laughs> and that the United States carried out a raid. And we'll learn more of the details. The reports that American helicopter was shot down. The reports of you know collateral damage, whatever. But it's the message, the real importance, I think, is that uh, it underscores what I mentioned last week, I think, in our discussion about the resurgence of ISIS, yeah. that people who had counted it down and out uh, were wrong, that it's been rebuilding its forces in Syria, in Iraq, in other places, in, in, in Yemen, uh, certainly in Egypt, they're still present and still posing a, a threat. And the uh, the, uh, the prison uprising has has focused attention on it because it was such a large-scale operation, 3,000 prisoners in that camp, and the uh, Kurds who are charged with guarding these camps uh, fought valiantly. Eventually, with American assistance and others, they were able to round up most of the, uh, and take retake control of the prisons, 
but nobody should discount uh, ISIS and the, and its recruitments of new new people. Um, when I, I, I've I've asked you this before. In terms of when a leader is taken out of one of these terror organizations, I mean, to what degree does it set the organization back? How significant is it in terms of uh, delaying their growth and trying to find new leadership? That's a really important question, and nobody has a magic formula to weigh it. But certainly the removal of Osama bin Laden, the removal of uh, Soleimani in, in Iran or others, Farah uh, Zadeh, the, the nuclear scientist, it makes a difference. They can't replace these people, both their knowledge, their experience. Uh, they have not been able to replace Soleimani. The person who took his uh, job in Iraq is clearly not as respected. He's not the symbol. He's not the aggressive leader that uh, Soleimani was. And inside Iran, too, on his yard site, they had nationwide commemoration statues going up of him, uh, some of which were burnt down right away. But it's very hard for them to replace the leadership it also sets off internal strife between people over who should be the successor. Um, it happens in democracy. I'm also with Hariri's uh, assassination in Lebanon. Till today, they have not recovered, and his son just left Lebanon. And Lebanon now on the brink of total chaos, or already in total chaos, with Hezbollah taking advantage of it and increasing its uh, its presence and its uh, dominance, which obviously means Iran presence and and uh, and dominance in the country and and we've seen some of the statements how they are a cleansing part of lebanon of the of the um of the population and imposing more of a shiite population their whole families are selling their property to others who are really fronts to christians or other uh, sunnis only to find out that they're really fronts for hezbollah and they turn uh, as they are doing in Syria, as Iran is doing in Syria, turning the mosques, the Sunni mosques, into Shiite mosques, and consolidating their positions in these countries. And this is, you know, doesn't get much attention. Um, you will see a Lebanon that is not the balanced situation of Christian, Sunni, Shiite, Druze, etc., but much more dominant by the Shiites under Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon, and um, it will be a safe haven for for terrorists to operate out of, and one of the reasons why Israel works so assiduously to make sure they don't get the advanced weaponry that Iran keeps trying to transfer to them via Syria. I think um, I think I'd ask you this even if you weren't in Israel, but because I always get this impression that when you're there, uh, you're you know even better connected to some of the government officials. But did Israel have a role in this? You know, if this if this is true, if the New York Times is right that this took months to plan. Uh, is Israel consulted? Is Israel uh, have an active role in eliminating this guy? I don't think that necessarily an active role. Israel shares a lot of intelligence with the United States about all the countries in the region, and uh, certainly the ones that are closest to Israel, where, where Israel has to monitor them very carefully. Uh, this is a threat. We have thousands of troops, so it's a threat to U.S. troops and a threat to U.S. security. And the the um, role of the Russians there and the Turks and the Iranians, everybody operating in Syria uh, has a lot of implications for us. I, I discussed last week the joint Syrian-Russian trolls, which, as you saw, got mentioned uh, uh, almost a week later in the press for the first time, talking about what the implications that if it's against Iran, against things, they're not limiting Israel's, Russia is not limiting Israel's ability so far to respond, as we have seen. Uh, including this week where they took out 
a big arms depot near Damascus. But the 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 larger picture is still one of uh, concern to everybody, the instability of uh, the extremists able to take advantage. Iran very cleverly uh, dismantled its Shiite militia and then replaced it with even more people recruited from the population in Syria because they pay them a lot. And they're changing the Sunni mosques to Shiite mosques. And they are still, now these people who live in the areas closest to the Golan are able to be under Iranian control, but not limited by the agreement to pull back 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers from the border. Uh, So sometimes the remedy can create a new circumstance that's even worse. I know I ask you this every week, but again, it's a little bit of a different context because I would assume you're going to be meeting with some of the Israeli officials there, and I don't know how tolerant they're going to be of this, uh, but it does seem again, and I know it sounds like a broken record, but it does seem again that the U.S. is ready to lead uh, you know, some type of actual deal um, closure with Iran. At least that's what the mainstream media is reporting and keeps reporting as if they're, you know, as, as if they can't wait for the jubilation that's going to, you know, occur the, the moment this thing is actualized. Uh, do you think that Israel will take a, a strong stand to discourage the United States from making this a final deal? Or in this case, they're just ready to act whether there's a deal or not? Well, Israel will, will do whatever is necessary to deal with an Iranian threat. But, but let's take it, break it down again for people to understand that even if there is a deal, it's not going to change the reality on the ground because Iranians know how to enrich. They've installed the IR-6s, I understand, under the New Deal. They don't have to take them down, destroy them. They just have to freeze them in place or you know, disconnect them from the system. But overall, once Iran has the knowledge how to do to enrich the 90 percent, they've already they're doing it now at 60 percent, which is a they're 30, 20 times what they're supposed to in a violation of the agreements. Their ballistic missile capacity continues to be developed under under the guise of a space program, but all a violation of U.N. resolutions. They haven't promised with weaponization, meaning affixing enriched uranium to a, a weapon that could be put on a, a rocket, but that's technical. So even if there is a deal, and unless the deal includes imposing the sanctions not releasing the sanctions on the oil and petrochemical sector, not allowing the tens of billions of dollars that Iran has in countries like Japan, South Korea, et cetera, around the world, unless we we prevent that, then Iran will run with the cash like they did last time, pour it into their terrorist activities, threaten all the countries in the region, including Israel, and will not abide in the end by any agreement. They still don't let the international atomic energy inspectors see the sites so we don't even know all the places where they are enriching where they're building facilities look how quickly they rebuilt the facility at Nantans, which was completely destroyed and build it bigger and better and now building underground facilities which will become more impenetrable to air attack it'll make it much more uh, much more difficult the positive note was senator menendez and those who live in new jersey should be writing him People everywhere should be writing him to thank him for the very strong stance he took in Congress opposing the deal. And and this is somebody who I think was not in the opposition, the lead opposition in the original deal, but uh, taking into account what Iran has done since then and the situation that we have today. Russia is playing a bigger role inside Iran, I can tell you, and uh, and wants a deal, but the deal that will benefit uh, Iran because it will benefit them in the long run as well. 
So Iran continues on every front being offensive. You know, what they're doing to their own athletes was uh, exposed this week. It was really quite remarkable when you see how far they go in the providing of human rights, et cetera. And, the, you know, the Iranians did stop production at one of their facilities at Kars, but, you know, in the media mentions that, but they don't talk about all the other facilities that are still running and the, the danger that Menendez, Senator Menendez uh, highlighted in this. Morocco uh, issued a very strong uh, statement about the um, what, what Iran is doing in Africa, and they talked about them. Um, it's, it, I thought it was talking about spiritual security, threatening Africa's spiritual security, because they're trying to introduce the, the radical Shiite doctrine in, into the rage region. And, you know, the, they accuse Hezbollah of having been involved, certainly even in fighting against um, with the Polisario against Morocco in Western Sahara. So Iran... Uh, I think that the chance of the deal are 50-50 at this point. There are people in the administration who have told me that they don't believe the deal is possible. There are others who are saying they do believe that a deal, uh, the outlines of a deal uh, have been proposed. I- Iranian representatives are going back with their own proposals, which include, I'm told, you know, having to reduce American troops in the region, which clearly is a Russian demand, not an Iranian uh, priority. And... Um, and, and the total release from uh, the sanctions. They want a commitment up front. When they will, will do, we will see them do exactly what they've done before. And the threat is not diminished by this. Maybe the immediacy, but so it'll take them another month, another two months to reestablish it as they did now. As long as the knowledge is there and the capacity is there, they can do it anytime. It's just funny how you paint it as 50-50 when it looks to me like the general media has it at like 99%. It's funny. like They're, they're so joyous in, in anticipation of the big day. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Well, big day for us as Malcolm Honelines in Israel, as we like to say. In every situation where one of us is in Israel, we're bridging the gap between Israel and diaspora, but now especially two years into this uh, pandemic, every opportunity we get to bridge uh, the gap between uh, the diaspora and Israel, we try to take advantage. And next weekend, please God, with our Kosher Halftime Show, which is going to be uh, centered on Rabbi Shlomo Katz and his performance in Israel, we'll be doing it again. Uh, Everything in our power that we can do to bridge the gap between Israel and diaspora we have a lot of work to do after these two years, everybody. So I hope that you're you're ready. You're ready for the ride um, of uh, of of really establishing a much more closer relationship again between the two. Um, do you worry? I, I mean, I, I, I'm asking this, I guess, in the context of the Ukraine, or or many people would think I am, but I'm 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 really asking in general because of the way you just painted the future of the Middle East. Uh, do you worry when the Russian and Chinese leaders get together to meet? Anytime they get together, it can't be good for us. Uh, whether they manifest it, as they have with the joint naval exercise of Russia, China, Iran, in the North Sea, um, whether it's a manifest in uh, some of the other joint activities, but Russia and China coming together, uh, obviously it's an alignment against the United States. Uh, it plays out in the backdrop of the Ukraine and uh, the Taiwan issues and all the other crises that we face and the competition um, for them. China is heavily invested in Iran. They're buying the oil. They are not interested in a conflict. They don't want to 
get involved. They don't have ideological goals except, as with every place else, to establish themselves economically, to be able to take out of the country, as in Africa where it's food, and, or in Iran where it's oil and uh, energy, and to build up their own economy and, and economic strength. Uh, they have a strong military. I think they were prepared to use that strong military if they want, if they deem it necessary. But I don't think they want a war. I don't think Russia wants a war. Uh, I think for Russia, it's a much more difficult given the, it's much more difficult given the economic conditions where they have been very hit, hard hit, uh, only saved because of the price of oil going up so much, and they are the number one exporter of oil, not Saudi Arabia and other countries that people usually uh, assume are. Uh, is, a, is a prominent country in, in the export. Uh, Russia is um, meddling in many uh, areas. Putin is a very shrewd guy, and he takes advantage of whenever he thinks there's weakness. And, and he created facts, like in the Crimea, like in Donbass. And he has designs on other areas as well. He wants to, to reassert the control of the former Soviet uh, Union in countries in Central Asia, and, of course, Ukraine and others. And they, that's why, to a large extent, I think he's achieved a lot of his goals. The question is whether he has a military objective. But he got the world to pay attention to his demands on NATO to, I think, slow down any drive of expanding NATO. And they probably didn't eliminate it, but I think they're going to think twice or three times after this. And getting the United States and others to sit down with him and discuss these issues. So, to a large degree, he can claim a, a victory already. That, that that may not satisfy what his real objectives are. Wow. And, and, and again, even though you've described it, I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't get my head around the real objectives of China are unless just expansion, like, you know, whatever they can take control of, whatever countries they can have more influence in. Right? Would that basically describe it? They, they don't want control. They want influence because they don't want to be ba- a burden with having to balance the budgets and take care of the taxes and stuff. They want to be present where they feel they need a military presence, but more importantly, the economic presence. That's why they're building ports everywhere. In Africa, they're trying to build in very strategic places, um, ports they did in the UAE, they even, even the Haifa port they negotiated for. Uh, they are trying to, to control as much as they can at the flow of goods and, and be part of that, uh, of the international system when it comes to it, without paying a heavy price. I mean, they don't commit soldiers, and they don't have to commit abroad. They're certainly in the near abroad, meaning adjacent countries and stuff. China is very active. But their uh, road and belt initiative is spreading. It's in Iran. It's in the Gulf. It's elsewhere. And it's primarily an economic motivation. It's not to to propose that their radical ideology be adopted, although I think that they... They have a numerous uh, side objectives that they would like to achieve as well, but their their main goal: energy, 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 and food, and other things that they need to feed this kind of a large population. All right, if I don't, if I don't get to this topic, there are going to be some people that are upset. Um, Malcolm, uh, you know. Malcolm Holine's reaction to Whoopi Goldberg. I knew what was coming. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know. I, I think that the we, we have to make sure that this is an important teaching moment, that the message not get lost. It's not a black, white, black, Jewish issue. <clears throat> that the, the real disaster here is the, is the lack of education, that a third of American teens think the Holocaust is exaggerated or fabricated. Uh, 
that they, they get their information not from their schools, but they go online where you see so much Holocaust uh, denial. Half of the students knew how many Jews were killed, and 92% wanted to know more. But most of them pointed out that social media is where they're learning what the information. Our comments were certainly insensitive, ignorant. I mean, to, to deny the racial component of uh, Hitler's objectives is, um, you know, just contrary to the facts. But I, I don't want her to be the focus. I think there's a really fundamental crisis in terms of, you know, anti-Semitism in America. And we talk about it a lot in France. There was an increase by 75% in 2021. When we see what's happening in many countries in, in the universities, uh, Algeria is now becoming a base of, of uh, vicious anti-Semitic uh, provocation, joining other countries that uh, we all know. Uh, I, I can go through all the statistics, but they all point to a very serious situation of ignorance about the Holocaust and ignorance about anti-Semitism, some of it deliberate. When you see people marching as neo-Nazis in Orlando and across yeah. the country, the swastika becoming part of the COVID demonstrations, you know, it, it, people dismiss these things. I do not. I think it's it's a reflection of what the next generation is going to believe when we don't have the survivors, at least to give testimony. We saw this report from the Diaspora Ministry in Israel, here in Israel, that a 1,200% increase in the number of anti-Semitic posts inciting to violence over the last year on the Internet. So if that's where they're getting their information, that's dangerous in and of itself. Yeah. And we have to take advantage of this moment when there is attention to at least make sure that the information is there and that, you know, people have to be held to account. And, and we, we see people conducting and carrying out anti-Semitic attacks, and they and 10 minutes later, they're walking the streets again. No, that's not acceptable. And we have to really make our voices heard when schools and teachers and others are professing anti-Semitic views. Don, I want to see the suspension of a truck driver if he, in fact, dumped snow on, on Jews. He has to be fired, and then everybody else will get the message. Otherwise, slaps on the wrist, don't educate. Yeah, I get that. Uh but it seems that the, in general, the atmosphere now is as you just described it, that you have to fire, you can't just, I mean, or suspend. You know, there's no such thing as just rebuking somebody anymore or, you know, understanding their apology or accepting their apology. Um, and, and, and therefore, I'd like to suggest that it's not really, the, I, I hope I'm right about this, it's not really the Jewish community that reacted to her uh, by and and demanded that she be fired. I think that again, that's the culture of today. That there's going to be you know strong disciplinary mm -hmm. action, even when someone tries to explain themselves, even when they feel bad about it, even when they apologize for it. You know, I'd like to think that that it's not pressure from our community that ended up with that result. Am I naive? Well, it wasn't. It came a lot of it came from CNN, but but I think that it can't be in every case. We have to draw distinctions about the severity of the of the actions of people. I think her in her case, it, it's a chance to really educate a lot of people. I don't know that she should be fired. I think that the the repercussions, you know, it, at some point, things like that backfire. Uh, and uh, I think, again, she, uh, she would visit the Yad Vashem she was invited to in this two weeks that she's off. That would be a really important gesture. And she comes out and says, as a component. I mean, she has said that she never realized it. How somebody growing up in America and having the you know, education and the opportunities and the stuff that she has not to know 
the true nature of what the Nazi ideology was against blacks as well. They saw them as inferior. They saw many people as inferior, um, and, and certainly racial undertones to the, to the whole ideology of, the, of Nazism. But I, I think you should turn these things on the head. When we encounter somebody and we see even members of Congress making allusions, comparing the Holocaust to COVID uh, restrictions and things, it, it, it demeans it and it, it minimizes the Holocaust in the eyes of people because they don't see what's so, if people don't uh, react to it and, and say you can't draw those kind of analogies because you diminish and demean the real seriousness of the crimes that were committed. Yeah, I hear that. Important lesson. While we're on the topic, what could you tell us about Amnesty International? That this is really vicious anti-Semitism gone wild. It's Amnesty International UK issued a 211-page report. I don't suggest people read it, read the summary. It'll make you sick to read it, where they essentially challenge Israel's right to exist. It's not about today. It's about 1948. It's about, you know, alleging Israel being an apartheid state, which is so contrary to fact. The United States called it absurd. The Germans attacked it. Many other countries, Australia, anybody with a brain would reject this uh, this uh, report. It's so one-sided. It's, it's literally anti-Semitic, uh, not just anti-Israel. And anybody who has questions about whether the distinction, just read that, you'll get it. And you understand that they, that Israel is just an excuse for for uh, venting uh, against the, the Jewish people and Jewish rights and and our standing and delegitimizing both Israel and the Jewish people by these, this kind of attack. But it, it demeans also the apartheid and what the blacks faced in South Africa. If you drew draw a comparison to what uh, to what is going on in Israel, I mean the fact that you have a, a Palestinian Islamist party an Arab Islamist party in the government, that you have Palestinians saying that they would prefer to live under Israeli rule, that in Jerusalem, I think it's 75%. That's not an apartheid state. And and the increasing rights, everybody can say, highlight that there are problems. We see it now in the, in the UN, which is very serious, and I, I highlighted it a couple weeks ago when it was being passed, and, and we've had reaction, but it's minimal compared to the danger. This commission of inquiry, which has no time set, unlimited budget, it's like establishing a law firm for one purpose, and that's to attack Israel. In addition to the propaganda machines that the U.N. has created, the two committees, which they fund with many millions of dollars, the U.S. has to make sure that they cut off our funding, that, and we provide more than a quarter of the funding for the U.N. budget, that the, these commissions which will become, and they will summon people, they will be able to do whatever they want in terms of getting information and being able to put out reports. It will be just an onslaught of of hostile uh, uh, attacks on Israel and on Jews. I I think it's a very dangerous movement. We're going to see a number of resolutions coming up soon. We're also going to see the International Criminal Court and Court of Justice maybe taking up cases. These are often dismissed by people, and it's makes their brain hurt to think about it, but understand it influences people. It becomes a justification for anti-Israel violence and hatred, and no one should dismiss it. Yeah. It certainly does make your brain hurt, but I'll tell you, we have to, if we have, if we thank God, have this opportunity, 
in luxury and freedom as opposed to so many prior generations uh, to fight this battle, then we have to consider ourselves lucky for that. By the way, on the Chicago case, we should mention there were there was at least one arrest made in that uh, anti-Semitic episode, if I'm not mistaken, right? And, and yes, the, there was one person, and he may, and that they're saying now that that person was responsible for most of the attacks. And but, there, but you know, no, I was going to say the reason I wanted to point it out is because there's so many that you know wonder about the uh, police reaction and uh, uh, you know government reaction now to violent episodes. You see what's going on. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you see that people can walk into stores and loot the place, and nothing happens to them, and people unfortunately can actually. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, but we know it's the case. You know, murder people and find themselves back on the street days later. Um, you know, so you wonder. But it's a difference, uh, Nahum, that the arrest that took place of the guys who were attacked in Brooklyn, we've seen three or four p- cases where people are arrested, and it's only because of the street cameras and being able to get pictures and identify uh, the people. As much as I hate street cameras because of all those tickets we get for. You know, school zones and everything. Right. They really are. It's life saving, and people who have cameras outside should make sure that they're on. And they, you never know how important it is in recording information that can be made available to solve cases. And we have to show. And it can't be this revolving door justice. It's just continuing and continuing. So if they don't feel that they ultimately have to pay a heavy price for what they do, then it'll be continue to happen. Yeah, I guess that's the irony of the Lakewood case where the guy, I think the guy actually posted the video himself. Like, you know. Yeah, and then was laughing, and then he sort of tried to deny it. But, but you know, when somebody does that, he's self-indicting, right. and the, the course has to be very clear. And if you want to stop, you can't stop people from hating. But you can make them, you can pour, force them back under the rocks. What he does in his home and his living room is one thing. When he's driving the truck and what his public behavior they have to be held to account. And if it's an elected official, if it's the businessman, if it's people on the street, all of them have to know there's a price to pay for this. Yeah. The increase is so substantial. I mean, what we see in one weekend is it's mind-boggling. I can't even tell it to people because if we sit here, all the things we see on a single weekend in the country, they'd say, oh, come on, I don't think it's that bad. It is that bad. And that's why you've got to take a strong stand on it. Wow. Malcolm Honline from Jerusalem. How many days of meetings will uh, your group have? Well, we we uh, were having, we had two parts. One is was in the UAE, which we're not doing because of the COVID situation. But we will be here. It'll be later this month, and we'll keep you updated. But it'll be five days of uh, very intense meetings, and I have now meetings these uh, in the next uh, two weeks to prepare and to catch up on all the people I didn't see for. <laughs> a chance that you'll uh, be able to join us next week, or that's to be determined? Uh, it will be determined, but God willing, I keep trying like today. Jet lag. No yeah. question about it. You just landed in Israel, and you're with us. Uh, enjoy Shabbat in Yerushalayim, and thanks so much for joining us. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Malcolm, Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday's weekly update here at JM and the AM. He's in Jerusalem. Please, God, will be there soon, I hope. Uh, all of us should be there soon. If we're not there, we should at least uh, be experiencing things with our family to help bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora, including our Kosher Halftime Show, presented by the Rothenberg Law Firm, coming up a week from Sunday with Rabbi Shlomo Katz, the uh, featured performer. And we are looking forward to a great show. And yes, you know the goal, everybody. The goal of this network always adjusts. And right now, the goal is to uh, bridge that gap 
between Israel and the diaspora 